I think we have all gone through times that we wished we were someone else. But today's case shows the lengths one woman was prepared to go to to get a new identity so she would not be alone and could be someone else. Hi, I'm Lee and welcome to True Crime Queen. I post solved and unsolved cases from around the world every week on YouTube and on your favourite podcast platforms. Before I go on, a warning. This is true crime. It's real life with real people. And these cases can be horrific and suitable for mature audiences only. Discretion is advised. Sources for this case are listed below if you wish to dive in further. Today's case takes place in Nishinariku, which is one of the 24 wards that form part of Osaka in Japan. It doesn't have the glamour of its neighbour to the south, Namba, being an older neighbourhood, popular with backpackers looking to experience the real Osaka and budget stores selling cheaper clothing and gadgets. At night, there are bars and karaoke spots and theatres to entertain the locals. It has a tougher side, it's said to be the home base to a couple of Yakuza gangs and there's a bit of crime as well, mainly drugs and gambling related. When this case took place in 2014, the population was just shy of 120,000 people living in an area of just over 7 kilometres squared. Nishinariku was also home for Rika Ricarda, a young woman with her whole life ahead of her. Just 29, she'd been living in her apartment on her own for some time in Minamitsumaria in Nishinariku. And it was convenient for Rika as it was close to the hospital where she worked as a nursing assistant. Rika was a quiet, kind and polite woman. She had an easygoing nature and a wide welcoming smile and that was an advantage in her career of nursing. She loved to cook in her spare time and she'd often post photos of what she was cooking and her finished creations on social media. She seemed to be on social media nearly every day. Buckle up and let's dive in. On the 2nd of May 2014, Rika Ricarda's mother received a call from the property manager of her daughter's apartment and he wasn't happy. This was the second time that he had had to call Rika's mother as the rent hadn't been paid. The rent for April was now outstanding and this was becoming a habit. Rika, who had always been a good tenant, hadn't paid her rent for March either and the property manager had to call Rika's mother then and she paid the rent on behalf of her daughter. And it seemed to the property manager that Rika was avoiding the issue. He'd tried knocking on the door of the apartment, but he'd had no answer. And he'd phoned multiple times, but no answer. Just a busy signal. Unable to contact Rika, the property manager called her mother to chase up that outstanding rent. And her mother was very concerned as well. Rika's parents and brother and sister all lived in the same area but they hadn't seen or spoken to her for over a month now. She had, of course, been in contact. They'd received a number of texts from their daughter, but looking back, it seemed that the text messages had stopped mid-April. And like the property manager, when they called, they always got the busy signal. The other odd thing was that Rika was always active on social media. 
She chatted to friends, she showed the meals that she was making and her cute little dogs, but she hadn't been posting online either. Worried, Rika's mother took the spare key to the apartment on the 4th of May and made her way to the 10-storey municipal apartment block where Rika lived on the first floor. She opened the door to the apartment and at first glance it seemed all was in order and it took a minute or so to realise that there were things missing. Her handbag, wallet, phone and her two little dogs were missing. Her clothes and other belongings were all in the apartment. But as she moved through the apartment, she noticed blood on the tatami mats. These are used for flooring and sitting and often sleeping in Japan. And stepping in closer to investigate, she noticed a large amount of blood on the side of the bed and the wall. Fearing the worst, she immediately called the police. Something was very wrong. Rika's parents told the police what they had found in the apartment and they formally reported their daughter missing. Investigators were sent to inspect the apartment and once they arrived and inspected the blood, they quickly launched an investigation into the disappearance of Rika. They quickly started interviewing friends, family and work colleagues and put together a timeline of Rika's movements. It did not take them long to establish that No one had actually seen Rika in person for some time. In fact, the last time anyone seen Rika was on the 21st of March 2014 when she walked out of the main entrance of the hospital where she worked at the end of her shift and set off to make her way home, as she always did. And it seemed that she made it home because a search of her social media accounts revealed that she had instant messaged a few friends. She told them that her old school friend was waiting for her at the door to her apartment when she got home and had asked to stay with her for the night. Although polite and well-mannered, was also a very responsible girl. And she told her friends, I refused as I had work the next day. And this seems pretty understandable, except Rika did not go to work the next day. Instead, she emailed her work, saying she wasn't well and she wanted to take leave so she could recover. She hadn't told anyone that she'd been sick at work or told her parents or friends that she was unwell and she hadn't posted on any of her social media accounts to say she was unwell and staying home, which was unlike her. And she wasn't the type of girl that would make up being sick to take time off work. The last communication Rika had with her friends was on the morning of the 22nd of March. Rika sent a LINE message and LINE is a messaging service like WhatsApp. And she told her friend, Yuri just showed up at my place last night and she refuses to leave. The friend didn't hear anything further from Rika after that. When talking to Rika's friends, the police found that there was an incident a couple of days before she was last seen, and that had upset Rika. On the night of the 20th of March, she had written on social media, I just had a very unpleasant experience, and I'm shaking with anger. She didn't give any details, but it was out of character for the very easy-going Rika. And later on, when the police looked at the account, the post had been deleted. 
Although Rika had requested time off work, she hadn't returned to work and she hadn't asked for an extension of leave or actually made any contact with her employers. They tried contacting her on the phone, but they too got the busy signal. And after six days had passed, one of her colleagues decided to go to the apartment and she knocked and knocked on the door, but no one answered. The building landlord confirmed that he had been chasing up the unpaid rent at the end of March and after repeated unanswered calls was finally able to speak to who he believed was Rika and she told him that she was out of the area and she wouldn't be back for a while but she said on the rent. She never did and Rika's mother ended up paying the rent for March and then April. By now the police had obtained Rika's credit card records and they were going through the charges. On the 23rd of March, Rika's credit card had been used to pay a courier company to collect a parcel from Rika's apartment. This was unusual as Rika had not used courier companies previously, according to her bank statements. The police interviewed the courier company representative and they recalled that a female caller had made the booking and, according to their records, described the package as a realistic clay figure doll and it must be handled with care. The package was collected on the 24th of March by the courier company and it was addressed to Rika and the delivery slip was signed in her name. The phone number though that was listed as the contact number and the address for delivery were Rika's friend Yuri in Tokyo. The police also found that Rika had applied for a passport at the Passport Centre Rubino branch office at the end of March. But when they searched Rika's apartment, there was no passport. And at this stage, there were a number of possibilities. Maybe Rika left the country. Maybe she met with an accident. Or maybe there was foul play. The police were very thorough in their investigation and they obtained a copy of the passport application and it was then that their investigation focus changed because they had discovered a real lead. The photo on the passport application was not Rika's, it was her friend's, Yuri's. The application revealed that Rika's health card, which doesn't have a photograph on it, was used to apply for a passport in Rika's name. And the police now knew that Yuri had committed offences relating to a passport, but was she also involved in the disappearance of Rika? Yuri was the last person to see Rika alive, and the police now had evidence that she had obtained a passport using Rika's credentials. But who is Yuri? Yuri Ashi was born in Brazil, and then her Japanese parents moved to Japan when she was a child. She met Rika and they became friends at primary or elementary school and then later on in junior high school. They both lived close together in Nishinariku and they became friends. During high school Yuri Ashi decided that she would finish her education in Brazil. She also made an extremely important decision that would impact the rest of her life. Japan does not allow dual citizenship after the age of 18 and a choice needs to be made. 
Yuri made the decision to relinquish her Japanese citizenship and become a Brazilian. It seems an odd choice for Yuri as she'd spent her formative years in Japan. And while Brazil had previously been popular with Japanese immigrants due to a 1907 treaty, by the 1970s the popularity had waned when the lifestyle offered in Japan increased. Yuri didn't find what she was looking for in Brazil and she didn't mesh well with the country. So she decided that she would move back to Japan when she was 20. She'd been estranged from her father for three years as well. So maybe she just wanted to get away from family problems. As a Brazilian citizen though, she could only stay on a temporary visa and she soon realised what a mistake this was, giving up her citizenship. It was difficult to find a job. She ended up living in Tokyo, some 230 miles from where she'd spent most of her childhood and she struggled to get a job, finally ending up with a low-paying job part-time in a convenience store. To save money, she shared a flat with a Chinese student in Hachioji City in Tokyo and this was really her only friend. Some say they were more than friends, but who knows. Her friend had been living in Japan since 2008 and she'd attended graduate school there for urban planning. She taught Chinese as well to the locals and she'd made a real success of it. But in 2014, her friend and roommate made the decision to move back to China. She'd been offered a job at a Japanese company based in Shanghai. Now this woman was Yuri's only friend, her only close companion in Japan and she'd soon be leaving to live in another country and Yuri would really be alone. It was about this time that Yuri reached out to Rika as over the years they had lost contact. She contacted her via Line messaging app in January of 2014 and told her that she was back in Japan. The friends hadn't seen each other for 10 years or so and Yuri suggested that they catch up at a Japanese pub on the 1st of February in Osaka for dinner. And a couple of other schoolmates were invited to this get-together as well. Rika was really excited about the get-together and she posted on Facebook, I'm going to meet my elementary school classmates this evening. Has it been 10 years since we last met? They looked like they had a great dinner and catch-up together. And a group photo of them enjoying the reunion was posted on Facebook. And as arranged, Yuri stayed over at Rika's that night and returned to Tokyo the next day. But in the meantime, Yuri's Chinese friend was packing up and she was planning her return to China. She left for a short trip mid-March, leaving Yuri all alone in the apartment. As the police delved further into the credit card records, they found a charge for a storage unit in Hachioji City in Tokyo. The rental agreement was dated the 21st of April and it had been rented in Rika's name. The storage unit, though, was 230 miles from Rika's home, but only a few hundred metres from her friend Yuri's apartment. On April the 29th, Rika's credit card was again used to pay 37,000 yen for a pet hotel in Tokyo. And it seems that the dogs had been taken from Nashinariku to Tokyo and boarded where they stayed waiting for their owner. 
All of these pieces of information together were telling a story, but the evidence so far only supported charges being made against Yuri for the passport offences. There was nothing in the evidence to suggest that Yuri had been involved in Rika's disappearance. The Osaka police promptly issued a warrant for her arrest in relation to those passport offences. They were too late though. She had already used the passport. They found that Yuri had left for Shanghai, China on the 3rd of May. As the police monitored Rika's banking, they found that six more credit cards had been applied for in Rika's name and over a million yen in shopping on these new credit cards had been carried out in both China and Japan. Most of the items were closed but there was also that flight to China. On the 21st of May, the Osaka police moved their investigation to Tokyo. First they went to Yuri's apartment in Tokyo, but it was empty. Both Yuri, her flatmate, and their belongings were gone. They then went to the storage locker in Hachioji City that was rented in Rika's name. It was just a few hundred metres from Yuri's apartment. They opened the storage locker, but before they walked into the still room, they smelt a foul odour that is instantly recognisable. Inside the steel box, a two-metre-long cardboard box sat. It had been carefully marked, handled with care, on the outside. A shipping label stuck to the box showed the address of Yuri's apartment and the box weight as 50 kilos. The contents were described on the label as a clay doll. As they opened the box, they were met with plastic bubble wrap, which was tightly wrapped, obscuring the contents. When they unwrapped the cocoon inside, they found a decomposed female corpse. The body could not be immediately identified due to the deterioration, and loved ones and police had to wait for the results of the DNA sample to confirm what they had already suspected. It was Rika Akara. A post-mortem examination was carried out that revealed that Rika had been stabbed about 50 times and it seems that she was taken by surprise, drugged, unconscious or incapacitated as she did not have any defensive wounds. Many wounds had actually been inflicted after death or incapacitation. Her cause of death was noted as blood loss or hemorrhagic shock. The police now moved into a homicide investigation. Evidence was collected from the storage unit, including fingerprint analysis on the box, which revealed Yuri's fingerprints. Yuri was the prime and only suspect in the death of Rika. She was the last known person to see her alive. Her address was on the parcel that contained Rika's body. Rika's body had been found a few hundred metres from her home and her number was listed on the tenancy agreement and her fingerprint on the box. The police added more charges to their arrest warrant, including abandoning a corpse and murder. Rika's murder made the news internationally after her identity was released on the 25th of May 2014. And while her loved ones mourned, the media sprung into action, tracking down Yuri in China. Soon, photographs of Yuri and her friend walking hand in hand, shopping, 
enjoying a day out were being circulated in the media. Two days after these photographs were shown, Yuri went to the Japanese consulate in China, voluntarily and on her own. She confessed to using Rika's passport, but claimed that she had been given permission by Rika to do so. But you can't give permission to someone to use your passport, and Rika had already passed away at the time the passport was used, according to the medical evidence. The Japanese consulate handed Yuri over to the Shanghai police on 27th of May 2014 and she was held on suspicion of an immigration violation and later arrested for entering China on a fake passport. The case was a complex one. Three countries were now involved. As Yuri was a Brazilian citizen, normally she would be deported back to her country. However, she had committed offences in both China and Japan. Japan was keen to get Yuri back as the offences allegedly committed in Japan far outweighed those committed in China. They were stuck though as there was no extradition treaty between the countries and initially they had to rely on diplomatic relations between the countries and when that failed to have Yuri extradited to Japan, legal proceedings were taken. Li Zupang, a lawyer from a Chinese law firm, represented Yuri in the extradition case and he succeeded in having the request only being granted for forging and using personal documents and fraud. In 2016, China's Supreme Court ruled that Yuri should be sent back to Japan to face those charges. It's unusual for China to extradite people to Japan and Yuri's return to Osaka in police custody was the first such case since 1999. All up though, it took two and a half years before Yuri was sent back, arriving on January the 25th, 2017. Once she was in Japanese airspace, she was arrested by Osaka police officers for the murder of Rika abandonment of a corpse, robbery, fraud, passport and visa offences, among other things. News of her arrest in the media was swift and by the time the plane had landed, journalists and camera crews were waiting at the airport. Despite persistent questioning, Yuri refused to answer any questions and only said with her head bent down that she had nothing to say at this time. The Sakara police had been waiting years to question her and now they took her straight to a Sakara police station and the questioning started. In Japan, you can be held for 23 days without a lawyer and questioned by police. This may be why they have such a high confession rate. Yuri initially denied any involvement in the murder of Rika, only admitting to using her passport. But it wasn't long before Yuri confessed all. Of course, this is Yuri's version only of events and while some aspects can be confirmed by the evidence, unfortunately we will never know Rika's version. When Yuri's roommate got a job in China, Yuri decided that she would also move to China. She wanted to study in China with the goal of getting a job in advertising. She couldn't afford to move to China, she'd overstayed her visa, she was living in Japan illegally and her application to extend her visa had been denied. So she decided that the only way that she could move to China would be to try and forge a passport so she could leave Japan legally. She didn't have the money to get one forged on the black market or have the contacts. 
Her only other option, she felt, was still someone's identity. And she thought about the people she knew in Japan and who she could steal an identity from. It had to be someone who was single, as otherwise they would be missed quite easily. And they had to have never applied for a passport or left the country. So she took to social media and she reviewed her friends list. And it was there that she found her target. Yuri's apartment lease was due to expire at the end of March, but she extended it because she needed more time. She needed another month to put her cunning plan in action. On the 21st of March, Yuri bought a knife at a home improvement store and she then made her way to Rika's home, putting the knife in her handbag so it wouldn't be noticed. She waited outside until Rika came home from work and then she asked to stay the night. When Rika objected, she just refused to leave. And maybe Rika's good manners took over, but she ultimately allowed Yuri to stay rather than calling the police. After all, most people don't call the police on their friends. She was angry though and she posted on social media and she told her friends via messenger that she wasn't happy. Waking up on the morning of the 22nd, Rika was still unhappy with her unwanted house guest and she asked Yuri to leave. Yuri then without warning stabbed Rika over and over on her chest, stomach and back with the knife she'd bought and hidden in her bag. Some sources claim that there were more than 50 wounds to Rika's body. There were no defensive wounds though on Rika's hands and arms and Yuri has never offered any explanation why this is so. She also never explained why she inflicted multiple stab wounds on Rika. Many experts believing that such an excessive amount of stab wounds usually has a component of sexual motivation. She then drained Rika's body of blood as much as possible, wrapped her in bubble wrap with another layer of plastic around her and placed her in a cardboard box about two meters or six feet long. She then cleaned up the crime scene, wiped the knife, cleaned the area and took a shower. She didn't clean it very well though because there was still blood on the walls and mat when Rika's apartment was first inspected by her mother. Yuri then removed Rika's Facebook post where she told her friends she was angry and then she stayed in the apartment with Rika's corpse and her dogs. She used Rika's phone and email accounts to impersonate Rika, first writing the email to request leave from work, then communicating with Rika's parents and reassuring the property manager that the rental arrears would be sent. On the 23rd of March, she called the courier company and arranged for the cardboard box containing Rika's body to be collected. On the delivery instructions, she described the contents as a realistic clay figure doll, which must be handled with care. She used Rika's credit card to pay the courier company, and once it was collected on the 24th of March, she headed back to Hachioji City in Tokyo. She took with her Rika's handbag, wallet, credit card, health insurance card, and about 6,000 yen in cash that Rika had. She also took the dogs and headed straight back to Tokyo so she could accept delivery from the courier company when the package arrived the next day. Later, she booked the dogs into a pet hotel in Tokyo, again using Rika's credit card. Her roommate and friend was still in China, so Yuri kept the package in her apartment for a month. During this time, she applied for more credit cards in Rika's name and they were all approved. By mid-April, she turned Rika's phone off and stopped replying to messages and calls. All the while, Rika's cardboard coffin was still in her apartment. 
She knew that she couldn't keep it there for long though because her roommate was due to return and she needed to make other arrangements. Just prior to the roommate's return at the end of April, Yuri rented a storage locker 500 metres from her apartment. She paid with Rika's credit card and then paid a local handyman to transport the box to the locker. Once that was done, she securely locked the storage unit and planned her move to China. The roommate returned and the two made their final preparations before they both moved to China together. Using Rika's credit card, Yuri purchased a plane ticket for herself and of course did some shopping for her new life in China, buying new clothes and other bits and pieces, again using Rika's credit card. The pair flew out from Haneda Airport in Japan on the 3rd of May, Yuri of course travelling under the name of Rika Ricarda and using her passport. The only reason that Yuri gave police for her crimes was that she wanted to lead a normal life but not hers, someone else's and she said, I thought I needed to kill and impersonate someone else in order to redefine my life. After the arrest, Rika's mother said, we would like to thank the police and all concerned for their efforts to hand over the criminal. We hope that the investigation in Japan will reveal the truth of the case. Despite the confession, it would be another two years before Yuri's trial would commence on the 22nd of February 2019 at the Osaka District Court. Yuri admitted to killing Rika but raised a defence of diminished responsibility and this defence allows a person to say that they committed a crime and it gives them a partial excuse for it but it doesn't exonerate them. In order to prove this defence you need to show that your mental capacity has been affected by something. It could be intoxication, mental illness, something that means that you're not able to form the intent for the offence. And different countries and states have different and more specific definitions. But in Japan, a successful defence would lead to a reduction of the punishment. So for example, from a death sentence to life imprisonment. Once you raise this defence, it is up to Yuri in this case to prove it. Yuri claimed that she suffered from a mental illness at the time of the crimes, being dissociative identity disorder which is a recognised psychological illness. It was previously known as multiple personality disorder and there are a lot of symptoms and criteria for this diagnosis, some of which include the existence of two or more distinct identities and changes in behaviour, memory and thinking, among other things. Yuri's psychiatrist gave evidence in court and stated that she had one original, innocent and delicate personality, while the other is bold and cruel. He claimed that at the time of the crime, she would have been ruled by the other personality, saying that for her it was difficult to contain the action. Yuri claimed that she could see herself standing over the body of Rika that she had stabbed but could not remember stabbing her. The prosecution argued that Yuri's crime was a cold premeditated murder carried out to obtain a new identity and start a new life. They argued that the many steps over a significant period of time, including purchasing a knife, hiding the knife, cleaning herself in the crime scene, hiding and transporting the body in a unique way, impersonating Rika to delay discovery of the crimes, concealing evidence, 
all showed that she was able to distinguish right from wrong and was not suffering from mental illness. The court agreed with the prosecution, finding it significant that Yuri had continued to inflict wounds on Rika's body after her death and the actions taken to prevent the discovery of the crime. They felt that not only did she have the ability to judge right from wrong, but she was also able to control the behaviour. She was sentenced to life in prison on the 14th of March 2019 and at that time she said, I am sorry. I am sad and sorry for my actions and for causing so much trouble to so many people. She then appealed, which was unsuccessful. She appealed again and the court confirmed her sentence. As far as I am aware, under Japanese law, Yuri has no further right of appeal and will spend the rest of her life in prison. The Chinese friend has never been identified publicly or charged with any offences relating to the crimes against Rika Akara, to my knowledge. And from the sources I have read, it seems that she was unaware of the offences that Yuri had committed. After Yuri was sentenced, Rika's mother made a statement saying, I can never forgive the criminal who brutally robbed the life of my daughter who had been carefully raised and had a future with dreams. The sadness and suffering of our family will not heal in the future. I have a lot of unanswered questions about this case and maybe one day Yuri will fill in some of those missing pieces. Rika may be gone but she has not been forgotten and my heart goes out to her family and loved ones. If you found this case interesting, please consider taking a moment to leave a review. It really helps me out. If you would like to hear more true crime cases from me, consider subscribing to the podcast. Until next time, be kind to each other and stay safe out there.